point of this exercise, or certainly one of the objectives, is to let Leonard Wolf's remarkably prescient, as we've already been hearing, words and um, descriptions from the village in the jungle and related texts also to live in the room amongst us. So what we're going to do is we're going to, in terms of the order of this round table, we're just going to move from one commentator, respondent, to another in the order in which the extracts appear in your, in, in your handout. So without further ado then, just some very brief introductions. I'm going to introduce everyone in that order. Immediately here to my right, uh, Hermione Lee, president of Wolfson College, and of course, uh, the biographer of Virginia Woolf, Anna Snae, reader in 20th century literature at King's College, London. I will then, in my capacity as respondent, uh, say a few words after Anna. Then Nisha Manocha, who's a DPhil candidate uh, here in the English faculty uh, and who is also at Wolfson. Then uh, David Trotter, King Edward VII Professor of English Literature at the University of Cambridge and a well-known commentator on uh, modernism, Anglo-American modernism. And then Sushila Nasta, the Professor of Modern Literature at the Open University. Uh, who has worked extensively on South Asian literatures in English and other post-colonial writing in English. That's the end of the introductions. I now hand over to, uh, to Hermione Lee. Just one word to uh, the panel. If you could please direct your voices to the microphones, but not touch them, because <laughs> we are recording this session, so we, we want everything to be super clear. Right, thank you. Um, my, the dates fell off my, the, the year dates fell off my extracts. So the first one is 1915 and the second one is 1919. And uh, I want to contextualize uh, Leonard Wolfe uh, as a writer through his two little examples uh, of his relationship with Virginia Woolf just after the time of uh, the novel, soon after the time of the novel. I want to give a little chronological context which might be useful um, for the day as a whole, actually. Leonard and Virginia Stephen began to fall in love with each other in the autumn of 1911, while Leonard Wolf was on leave from what was then Ceylon. In December 1911, they were sharing a communal house in Brunswick Square. In the spring of 1912, he was proposing to her while deciding whether to resign from his post in Ceylon. In early May 1912, she agreed to marry him and he resigned his post. He was writing The Village in the Jungle and she was writing The Voyage Out. On August the 10th, 1912, they were married. She was 30, he was 31. In November 1912, his book was accepted for publication. Uh, in March 1913, her book, The Voyage Out, was delivered to Duckworth Publishers and in the same month that The Village in the Jungle was published. At the same time, they were debating whether to have children or not. In August 1913, she had a very serious breakdown, and on the 9th of September 1913, she attempted suicide. They moved out of their London lodgings into a house on the Green in Richmond in the autumn of 1914, during the war, with her health still extremely perilous. 
Leonard Wolfe's second novel, The Wise Virgins, partly based on his courtship of Virginia Stephen and her relationship with her sister Vanessa and his own family, was published in October 1914, but Wolfe, Virginia Woolf, didn't read it until the end of January 1915, and that's what that diary entry uh, is about, her reading his second novel. By early February 1915, a few weeks only after this diary entry, she was again extremely ill. She couldn't see him for months. She had to uh, have nurses with her. She didn't write anything to speak of for about two years. Uh, the Voyage Out, her first novel, was published in March 1915. And Night and Day, her second novel, which she started thinking about soon after that in 1916 and was writing in 1917, was published in 1919. So I'm sorry that's a bit compressed, but that's the pattern around their relationship and um, uh, the, pub, the, the work on their two first books, which, took, which kept pace with each other. In the first passage, the diary passage, she's describing a row that she's had with Leonard, not for the first or last time. Uh, they're living on the green in Richmond. They're looking at Hogarth House nearby, which they will finally acquire early in March 1915 while she's still ill. Does the fact that she's reading his second novel, The Wise Virgins, while her own health is frail and her own novel is about to come out, have anything to do with their argument? We don't know. Quite possibly. It might underlie it. Notice two things about the passage. One, that she says uh, The Wise Virgins is a writer's book. And she's defining, itself, defining herself as a writer, although he, by now, is the published novelist, not her at this stage. She's defining herself as the writer who can understand a writer's book, perhaps in some, somewhat in rivalry with him. And notice, of course, the key thing in that, uh, uh, in that diary entry, the opposition she's making between Leonard's rational, administrative, efficient side, his sort of blue books side, his commenting on the new statesman on government blue books, and his poetic side, which she says makes her happier. Notice also that uh, that passing reference to um, uh, Ethel Sidgwick's popular 1914 novel Duke Jones, which was an upper middle class comedy of manners, and she's identifying that sort of book as being not the kind of thing that either Leonard or she is writing. Uh, the second passage, just very briefly, um, the opposition between the poetic side and the efficient administrative side is acted out fictionally in the courtship scene between Catherine and Ralph in Night and Day, which reconfigures the Leonard Wolfe-Virginia Stephen courtship of a few years before, reconfigures it as fiction, setting the passionate, emphatic, needy, argumentative male lover against the abstracted, fanciful, interiorized female character. The heart of this exchange in the second passage is, are the two lines, I thought of you as a person who judges. No, I'm a person who feels. So that the model for Ralph Leonard Wolfe was a person who both judges and feels is something I think that's evident from reading The Village in the Jungle. In both these passages, the diary entry and the fictionalized version of their courtship, there's a to and fro of emotion, distance and closeness, quarrels and making up, intimacy and abstraction, which covers, colors their whole life together, is particularly acute in these early stages and points up the differences between them. Probably a very good thing for her that he didn't go on writing novels, uh, if not for him. Thank you.
So I'd like to build on um, Hermione's contribution by focusing, continuing the focus on Leonard and Virginia Woolf, um, in particular in those two passages, thinking about echoes uh, in their writing, across their writing around issues of empire. Um, so just to, to put the scene a little bit in the context of increasing work on modernism and empire, um, scholarship has increasingly turned to Woolf's work again, thinking about the traces of empire that are everywhere in her fiction, you know, whether you're looking at London as a city that monumentalizes empire in Mrs. Dalloway, or in the years as peopled with the colonial returned. Um, but it's surprising, I think, that scholarship or scholars have largely overlooked one of the most obvious influences on her thinking about empire, namely that she was married to um, colonial administrator turned prominent anti-imperialist. Um, so I think there's a lot of sort of clearly a lot of work there to do on the, um, the intellectual relationship. Um, one might think about their work at the Hogarth Press, um, publishing many colonial writers like C.L.R. James or Ahmed Ali or East African writer uh, Gitendu Mokri or the books published by the press that are very critical of imperial policy uh, by Norman Lees or Sidney Olivier. Um, but what I want to really do now is point to a more collaborative or symbiotic intellectual relationship between them that I think um, has been obscured because of uh, Leonard's, uh, the figure of Leonard as a kind of minder or a guardian of, of Wolf. Um, so one might, as, as Hermione's already talked about, one might think about the intertwined composition of their two Village in the Jungle novels, Voyage Out and the eponymous novel, um, or parallels in those novels around the idea of the tamed woman or the domesticated woman. Or one might think about the divergences in their approach. So as we've already heard, um, from Chanley this morning, Leonard, as he put it, tried vicariously to live their lives, however successfully or not he did that, whereas Wolf's, Virginia Woolf's focus is invariably on the, the colonizer. Um, but instead, really, what I want to do with those two passages is foreground Leonard Woolf's nonfiction, so his anti-imperialist writing of the 1920s um, and the work he did around the Labour Party's um, advisory Com committee on imperial questions. So my Leonard Wolf passage comes from Empire and Commerce in Africa from 1920, um, which was written for the Labour Research Department. Um, he conducted, it was originally going to be a, a global study, and he um, collected a massive, massive amount of research, uh, and then narrowed it down to not just Africa, but really North and East Africa, not just the British Empire, but he's looking at French Empire in uh, Tunisia and, and Algeria. Um, there's a, there's a brief section on the Belgian Congo, which takes us through to Conrad. I think we might come back to that. But he's arguing really there that with the rise of the nation states and industrialism, that commerce um, became the greatest of political interests, as he put it. So the idea that the purpose or duty of the European nation state is to protect commercial interests. And so from there, he sets out this theory of economic imperialism, the idea that late 19th century imperialism was driven by profit motive. So there you can hear, hopefully, see the, the phrase that resonates in both those passages, um, the idea of buying cheap and selling dear, okay, that you can see in both, both Virginia and Leonard's uh, work there. So this search for markets, raw materials, and profit, and they have, as he argues in this text, resulted in the violent conversion of the whole of Africa and Asia, quote, into mere appendages of the European state. Um, and he tracks the ways in which this results in various kinds of economic slavery and political subjection. He also argues, and there's fulsome evidence full of charts and tables, that actually the profit derived from the uh, colonial possessions is negligible and it only benefits a cluster of, of um, pri private financiers, basically, and traders. So, you know, this may seem common sense to us now, but at the time, this was quite a radical 
um, take or demystification of empire as a system based on a civilizing mission or moral destiny. Um, and it comes down really from work by Jay Hobson, his study 1902, Imperialism, where he makes a similar kind of argument. To turn to Virginia then briefly, so she proofread this, this text, Empire and Commerce. She writes in her letters, I'm reading it for the second time. To me, it seems superb. She helped with the research. She helped with the indexing. Um, and another sort of link, the e one of the epigraphs to Leonard Wolf's text, it comes from Pascal's Pensée, ce chien est à moi, and that you get that phrase again in Room of One's Own. So there are, again, these echoes across the text. So in the Virginia Woolf passage from her first novel, The Voyage Out, um, working on it uh, from 1907 onwards, but there's evidence that after reading Village in the Jungle, she went back and made further revisions, particularly the scene in Voyage Out where the characters take the river, trip down the river into the jungle, is double the length that it was in the early, perhaps as a, as a response to Leonard's text. So here we have a fictional South American colony, um, and we see again this notion of buying cheap and selling dear. So the, these characters, the Flushings, in a nod to Conrad, I think, are um, drivers behind this trip up the river to stock up on beads, brooches, earrings, bracelets to sell to smart women in London. More broadly as well, the novel engages with ideas of economic imperialism. The tourists have traveled out to South America um, on a trading ship, which is trading in rubber and hides. Um, Willoughby Vinrace, the father of the protagonist, enjoys, quote, his triumphs over wretched little natives who went on strike and refused to load his ships. Um, as with Leonard Wolfe, I think, in Village in the Jungle, this kind of economic exploitation is also linked to control or taming of women, so that we get his, uh, Rachel's father bullies his wife and carries out, quote, nameless atrocities against his daughter. One last point then, I think as well, it's interesting that both these passages and the text they come from point to the exploitative economics underpinning aesthetic modernity or literary modernism. So Leonard Wolf in his passage includes in his products, quote, products of the intellect or imagination, works of art in his lists of commodities. Uh, in the voyage out, the Flushings are um, bohemians. You can see in that passage, Mrs. Flushing still with a paintbrush in her mouth. They're dealers in modern art as well. As Willoughby Vinray says to his daughter, if it weren't for the goats, there'd be no music, my dear. Music depends upon goats. So, so just finally then, the, these passages, I think, point to the place of art in the capitalist economy and also the valuable commodification of the exotic or the primitive, in turn then signaling the way that both of the wolves were sustained by the very system that they were at some level uh, denaturalizing. Thank you. Great, and I'd like to um, take over from there and um, in continue that emphasis on, um, well, Leonard Wolf in, in particular in, in the, the sections that I've picked um, in, on his colonial fiction. Um, um, I wanted to draw attention with my extracts to Leonard Wolf's prescient sense of the profound contradictions, economic, political, social, that are thrown up when one people colonizes another, when colonialism takes place, and of the grotesque absurdities thrown up by that situation of subjugation, as we see uh, from the commentary of the men in their club of pearls and swine, thinking that they understand all about colonized peoples they have never seen and never could understand, quoting from that extract, which very much uh, captures 
uh, Wolf's prescience of Saidi and Edward Said's sense of knowing about the East without ever having visited, without ever having been there or ha having any experience of, of um, cultural difference, shall we say, for, for want of a better phrase. But I think it isn't only those features that Wolf's modern sense of um, the colonial process of colonial exploitation throws up in the village in the jungle. What he also sees and what makes him so remarkable as a commentator is his sophisticated in the round materialist understanding of empire as an economic and political system with the, with the emphasis on system. His understanding of what Trotsky somewhat later than Wolf called combined and uneven development. Wolf, as Anna's already said, derived his understanding in part from his reading of J.A. Hobson and the other anti-imperialist liberals of the 1900s and 19-teens who, of course, Trotsky and Lenin also read. But in part also, and it's worth, uh, I think, continuing to remind ourselves of this also because he was himself, of course, for seven years in the position of administrator or trainee administrator within that system. So he was on the ground. Unlike the men in the club in Curls and Swine, he had visceral day-to-day -day experience. He understood these contradictory operations of empire in their grainy day-to-day -day detail, as I think is reflected in the highly achieved realism, including psychological realism, as we already heard, of the village in the jungle. In one of the passage, uh, passages I've drawn your attention to, as many, many times in the novel, that psychological realism is cast from the vantage point of the villagers. Um, it's beautifully highlighted uh, in, the, in the keynote uh, by that passage of the, the, you know, the, the, the seduction that Wolf describes, a, a, a truly significant achievement, I think, in terms of psychological realism. How Wolf achieved this both stylistically and formally and in terms of mentality, I think would be interesting for us to consider in more depth as part of this round table. I have some speculations as to the sources and resources of this, shall we call it, colonial verisimilitude. And it doesn't lie, I think, in the fairly obvious tonal and structural borrowings from Conrad. I mean, the cadences of Conrad are all the way across and printed on, in particular, pearls and swine, but also in some of the polysyllabic repetitions of the opening scenes of The Village in the Jungle. But I don't think that that is where um, this colonial verisimilitude that Wolf um, achieves resides, or not only. It's interesting that he felt he needed recourse to Conrad, as it were, to set up the colonial scene. That, 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 is, that is a very interesting question. But my sense is also that the, the grainy fullness of Wolf's evocation of the village in the jungle, as if from within, comes from that um, in-the-round vision of a system in which the values ascribed to land, property, and clearing are imposed from elsewhere. So his, 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 his on-the-job, his insider sense of that system, um, which is imposed from the top, but makes no sense in, quote, this world of bare and brutal facts, uh, a system that is imposed and unreal, and yet, as he also writes in those passages, by no means imaginary. So it's, 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 it's Wolf's uh, very achieved sense of 
um, imperial exploitation from the inside, to put it in um, slightly, perhaps too broad a way, um, that I particularly wanted to highlight with these with these passages. Misha. Um, I also come to Wolf through Conrad, and I found that there was a lot of there were a lot of echoes in the village in the jungle, to Heart of Darkness, but also to Conrad's earlier works, Almir's Folly, and An Outcast of the Islands. But I also want to suggest the ways in it's really departing from those works as well. And to my mind, um, anticipating Achebe's things fall apart. So specifically, what I was thinking about was um, the role of writing in the jungle and how that's treated. So all of the passages I've selected actually um, are representing writing in some capacity. So that's really what I've been looking at. So it's a bit, it's a bit more focused than what we've already been discussing. Um, so the first passage, I'll just read out a bit of it. Um, you know, in this passage, we're offered the crucial detail that Babahami had been made a headman because he was the only man in the village who could write his name. So years ago, when a young man, he had gone on a pilgrimage. He had fallen ill there and had stayed for a month or two in the priest Fonsala. The priest had taught him his letters, and he had learned enough to be able to write his own name. So I think what's really interesting about this passage is that the headman's authority derives from his literacy, which is itself dependent on his having fallen ill by chance. So it's not a question of ability or meritocracy, but his position as a headman appears entirely arbitrary. And I think this sort of sets uh, a precedent actually for the way we encounter writing at later stages of this novel. Um, so the two other scenes I just want to briefly look at are when Similu, and I think we've looked at these already this morning, Similu and Bagwin are being tried, and the second which describes Silindu's confession after killing the headman and Fernando. So I'm just going to read out this courtroom scene because I think there's, there's quite a bit to say about it. The judge, as he sat upon the bench, looked out through the great open doors opposite to him, down upon the blue waters of the bay, the red roofs of the houses, and then the interminable jungle, the great jungle stretching out to the horizon and the faint line of the hills. And throughout the Throughout the case, this vast view, framed like a picture in the heavy wooden doorway, was continually before the eyes of the accused. Their eyes wandered from the bare room to the boats and the canoes, bobbing up and down in the bay, to the group of little figures on the shore hauling the great nets under the blazing sun, to the dust storm sweeping over the jungle, miles away where they lived. The air of the court was hot, heavy, oppressive. The voices of those who spoke seemed both to themselves and to the others unreal in the stillness. The murmur of the little waves in the bay, the confused shouts of the fishermen on the shore, the sound of the wind in the trees floated up to them as if from another world. So what I think is really interesting about this passage is that both the judge and the accused are attracted by what they see outside, which constitutes reality, the people working off the land and the water, whereas what occurs in the courtroom is like a dream, and that's a quote. Uh, significantly, the interminable jungle to my mind, I think this is a bit of a departure from the reading this morning, is not presented as a problem or as an impasse as in Heart of Darkness. Um, we might recall Marlowe's celebration, for example, of the mimetic referentiality of the found text, Talismans and Inquiry into Some Points of Seamanship, in light of the unreadability of the jungle in that novella, or even the much celebrated Times newspaper that the characters come to depend on in the context of the fictional colony of Virginia Woolf's The Voyage Out. So moreover, the hot, heavy, oppressive air of the courtroom is set in contrast to the wind and the trees outside. 
So this idea of stuffiness is very different to that in Forster's A Passage to India, for example, that courtroom scene, where the heat is part and par parcel of the chaos of the trial, but I don't think it's part of a commentary on the absurdity of the court itself as it is in The Village and the Jungle. So the village's court scene ends with a description of the judge's pen disturbing the silence of the room. This is a quote. The judge began to write, no one else moved, and the only sound in the world seemed to be the scratching of the pen upon the paper. At last the judge stopped writing. He looked at Baboon and began to read out his judgment in a casual, indifferent voice, as if in some way it had nothing to do with him. So that the judge appears to be disassociated from the words he has written again, I think lends to the sense of arbitrariness that you know, we get through earlier examples of writing that he's, you know, why is he in a position to decide on the fate of these men, for example? Why is he in a position to write at all? Um, and finally, I just want to consider the moment when Salindu confesses the murders of the head to, to the murders of the headman and Fernando to the magistrate. So again, there's an impetus or to record or document this information, but the narrative, particularly in the form of Salindu's response, I think suggests that this action, this, this need to document is actually gratuitous and it ends in kind of this comic deflation when he falls asleep after giving his, his confession. So this is the passage. The magistrate wrote it down and then turned to Salindu and then explained to him that the offense with which he was charged was murder and that he was prepared to take down anything he wished to say and that anything which he did say would be read out at his trial. The magistrate wrote down what Salindu had said, and when he had finished, sat thinking, the pen in his hand, and looking at Salindu. It was very quiet in the room. Outside was heard only the drowsy murmur of the sea. Suddenly the quiet was broken by the heavy breathing and snoring of Salindu, who had fallen asleep where he squatted. So just to conclude, what I found so compelling in the village of the jungle, and different to the, some of the contemporary works I've cited, is really the novel's irreverence for writing and text in the colonial context, not as a failure of the colonized, but I think as a critique of Western epistemology and methodology in this sense. Um, notably, I also thought this was noteworthy, that this is not a question of Salindu's illiteracy as one of the, as one of the downtrodden, um, as in, say, Baca and Mokla Janan's Untouchable, which I think presents a different case. But I think Wolf, Wolf's novel really raises the stakes when he asks implicitly if this particular kind of writing has any purchase at all. The strength of this critique brings to mind, um, for me, the concluding words of Things Fall Apart, and I'll just end on these. Um, as the district commissioner walks back to court after discovering Okonkwo's dead body, he thinks about his potential book. The story of this man who had killed a messenger and hanged him himself would make interesting reading. One could almost write a whole chapter on him. Perhaps not a whole chapter, but a reasonable paragraph, at any rate. There was so much to include, and one must be firm in cutting out details. He had already chosen the title of the book, The Pacification of the Primitive Tribes of the Lower Niger. Okay, uh, five, five passages um, arranged uh, chronologically. Um, I'm interested in, in The Village in the Jungle as a, as a, a primitivist text. I think it creates an idea of the, the primitive around uh, the village in the jungle. Um, and it creates that idea from the point of view, um, the constant implicit presence of a colonial view and um, a colonial voice, which is everywhere and nowhere. And I suppose that the primitivism really is my term for that ambivalence that uh, Chandani was 
exploring, um, part Montaigne, part Shakespeare. And in the sense, I suppose what ultimately interests me is why primitivism? What is the purpose of um, the primitivism, what I think to be the primitivism um, of, of this text? And there are five passages which are intended to try and provide context for aspects of, of, of that idea, that creation of an idea of the primitive. The first two from letters, um, and the first one is that point, um, I think is behind uh, that point in the text that Nisha's just been talking about, Leonard as an additional police, police magistrate, um, the point at which the, the colonial view materializes in the text, um, albeit in a rather shadowy fashion. So I won't say any more about that. And the second one is um, really about Leonard beginning to disbelieve in democracy. It is impossible to feel that it's real. And I sit up there, oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. Um, is it Salon or is it the liberal government that I'm beginning to disbelieve in democracy? I should have been a liberal in 1840. Now I think I am a Brahmin. We are all doomed. Um, <laughs> so beginning to disbelieve in democracy. And of course, a disbelief in democracy became a very powerful motivating force in the primitivism of a slightly later period. And the other thing to note about this passage is that a disbelief in democracy is also, it seems, a disbelief in towns, a disbelief in urban culture, an implicit preference for the villages where the colonizer is still absolute um, and where the old customs still prevail. The third passage is, is I admit, a slightly whimsical choice. Uh, but I thought it'd be quite good to have a, a brief glimpse of Leonard from the outside. In this case, it's Leonard in um, um, 1935, in May 1935. And this is Leonard as a Jew crossing the German frontier. And it's a kind of reminder of the sort of thing which can happen if you start to disbelieve in democracy. And it's a wonderfully acute entry, I think, um, as she begins to, to map some of the consequences of the tyranny that's emerging. Um, as you can imagine, the other thing in the passage that rather caught my eye is the idea of Virginia nibbling at Aaron's rod, <laughs> which I find completely irresistible and return to um, quite gratuitously on many occasions. Um, it, it's here for a slightly more um, solemn reason, namely that it reminds us that there was another kind of primitivism on the way um, Aaron's Rod is one of Lawrence's post-war leadership novels. It's by no means the most primitivist of those novels, but it does remind us that there was this full-blooded primitivism um, on the way in the shape of, of, of Lawrence. And the final two passages, both from, from the autobiography, um, Leonard arriving in Colombo with um, his 90 volumes of Voltaire and his dog, and guess which provides the most immediate illumination into the life he's about to lead. It's the dog, of course. And um, I love this passage because it's really about the, the ineradicable role that disgust can be said to have played in colonialism, I suppose, um, finding out that what disgusts you doesn't disgust the people that you now find yourself among or apparently doesn't disgust them. We don't know whether he'd actually disgusted these people or not. There's no way of knowing. 
Was the waiter really indifferent to all the crows swooping down on the vomit? We'll never know, but it's important to Leonard that he believes the waiter to be indifferent. And finally, um, the passage in, in the autobiography which talks about the village in the jungle, um, the idea of the jungle as being uh, very much the motivation behind this book. There's just one point I want to draw to your attention in this passage, and that's the kind of deviation in usage from you to one. There's a lot um, you know, uh, about, you know, it's all about getting lost um, in the jungle. The more you are in a jungle, particularly if you are alone, the more one tends to feel it personified. I think there's a significant slippage in usage there from you to the very much more patrician one. Um, and that goes on throughout this passage when he's describing getting lost in the jungle and discovering himself. It's that deviation or sliding from you to one. And there's at least one, I think, very significant passage in the novel where you get a similar kind of deviation or slippage from you to one into that patrician tone, which is one of the aspects of the colonial voice in this text. So it's really trying to trace um, the colonial voice um, and the colonial view as a kind of grounding for primitivism, and then to ask why, what's the point of the primitivism? Thank you, David. Um, the passages I've selected may seem to come at a tangent to um, our topic today, which is Village in the Jungle. Um, however, I think they will cast an interesting slant on the discussion we're having and the complexity of Wolf's positioning in terms of his sort of ambivalent relationship to the anti-imperialist cause. And, and I think what Chandler was talking about in the autobiography, the sort of schizophrenia that he talks about later. Um, I think there's various echoes in terms of what other people have said. I mean, in terms of Elika's discussion of pearls and swine and club culture, in terms of Anna's discussion of commerce in Africa, the idea of art as commerce and exchange, which created modernity across cultures as well as within Britain. Um, so I'm not speaking, as you probably know, as a specialist on Leonard or Virginia Woolf, and I feel I'm in very dignified company here, so I feel a bit embarrassed to be even starting off on this. But um, what I'm interested in is how empire, in this case, India, South Asia, Sri Lanka, was very much present at the center of London. So when Leonard Woolf came back from Ceylon, um, and indeed many other colonial officers, what happened? Why, what happened in terms of their relationships with the many Indians or South Asians who were actually indeed in the interwar years resident in Britain and very much part of the culture of Bloomsbury in terms of being on the streets, being in the British Museum, attending literary events and so on. And so the passages I've selected are really signaling um, networks between these like South Asian, I'm going to call them South Asia just because of post-independence, Indian intellectuals and writers, such as Mokhtar Jalan, who's well known, who had actually been in Britain for 20 years at that point. So they were both physical in terms of living together in a shared ge geographical space, but also textually proximate. Um, so Virginia Woolf, I think once presciently said in her novel The Waves that we are walled in here but India is outside and I think that's quite interesting because um, I think that outside might be an interesting space to think about both in terms of the peripheral vision of Leonard Wolfe in a sense in Village in the Jungle in, in not confronting head on the kind of politics of empire 
um, that Chandani was talking about. You know, why does he do that? He's fully aware of the politics. He knows he could write a different kind of novel, but he writes, he slants his vision quite deliberately and, and, and writes a remarkable book. Um, obviously, Virginia and Leonard Wolf were aware of the Indians. They knew many of them. Um, and yet after Wolf's Village in the Jungle and certainly Passage to India in 1924, South Asia seems to gradually recede from British literary representation. Um, and it's kind of paradoxical because it's at the moment, going back to what Chandani was saying about Village in the Jungle again, when politics actually comes to the forefront. You have Amritsar, you have Tagore resigning the Nobel Prize, you have the riots in British ports, the Lhasa Seaman. So it, they couldn't have avoided the political situation, yet it recedes. Um, so how then did free-thinking figures such as Virginia and Leonard Wolfe negotiate this presence of India in their myth, cope with the increasing embarrassment of empire um, as they were on the left, and how do they position themselves? So these are the three passages. The first one is um, taken from Wolfe's essay, Thunder at Wembley. Um, and it points quite explicitly to the illusion of the apparently stable edifice of empire, presented here like a modern theme park and representing the constructed consumerist face of a nation ever keen to sell an ideology to the general public, which was clearly built on shifting sands. As the extract shows or intimates, this concocted confection was designed to showcase the so-called realities, if you like, of empire. Um, but it can easily be toppled or simply blown away as wider forces sweep across it. I think one should remember these empires attracted thousands of visitors. Day trips were organized from across the country. Postcards were printed. Merchandise was circulated. And she, Virginia, had attended this exhibition with Leonard in 1924. Um, and her experience there provided the context for this piece. What is interesting about it, apart from the idea that the end is already in sight, is her skepticism and sense also conveyed, I think, in Village in the Jungle, that such artificially imposed and man-made imperialist structures, whether of buildings, the law, methods of administration, are transient. All empires will decline and fall, and their structures are shaky. Significantly, too, as in Leonard's novel, um, the realities of the world outside are symbolized here as nature. So they, and, and she's using nature in a very broad sense, I think. but they. Basically, these forces cannot be contained, and I think that speaks a little bit to your sort of point about primitivism, um, and in many senses resist control or containment, and that applies to human beings as well, because there's a lot of comment about the human being doing it. The second passage, you may think this is a bit of a jump, which it is, <laughs> takes us to 1942, uh, which is almost <coughs> 20 years later, and it's after Leonard Wolf has become a prominent anti-imperialist, if you like. Um, he's been very formative in terms of the League of Nations. The Hogarth Press is functioning. They've published a few Indians. Um, so here we have a passage where it's a letter written to Anand, Mokhraj Anand, who was a writer who worked amidst the Bloomsbury Group for a while and actually worked at the Hogarth Press for about a year as a proofreader. Um, it's a letter which prefaces a pretty polemical book, which Anand publishes at a strategic moment in the middle of the Second War, when 2.5 million Indian soldiers were fighting in the war, to get across 
his point of view, or that's what he argues to the English, general English public. So the question is, and he produced two editions of this book, one without Wolf's letter, and I should say you've only got a little bit of this because actually Anand also publishes his reply to Wolf in the Labour Party edition because they're sitting alongside each other. Why does Anand ask Wolf, whom he supposedly, it's said that he abandoned his Bloomsbury friends by the 40s when he was working with George Orwell, why does he ask Wolf to write this letter? Um, so that's a question. Um, Wolf um, replies much later in a, in a fight he has with Orwell in, a, in, a, in the Tribune that Anand asked him to write it because he wanted to be lifted up, rather like Tolstoy supposedly lifted up Anand in his preface to his first novel. But Anand denies that. Um, I think that's a question that we should think about in terms of the spaces that were being negotiated in, in Bloomsbury. But I think more importantly, Anand asked Wolf to do this because he maintained a relationship with Wolf, which is apparent in various other contexts. It also, his book spoke to Leonard's anti-imperialist feelings and writings. It flagged his support of the Indian independence movement. Um, it also flags Wolf's continuing relationship to Indian and Ceylonese intellectuals in London, a network established through his early talks for organizations such as the Indian YMCA. Um, and it also points to a very complex relationship that was going on in the press between figures like George Orwell and Leonard Wolf, whom I believe, but correct me if I'm wrong, never met. Does anyone know whether they met? I, I haven't any found any Leonard and George Orwell and Leonard Wolf, which is a bit strange as they both had colonial administrative backgrounds. They were both writers. They were prominent journalists. Why did these two characters never meet? Yet Anand was a kind of bridge between them. In fact, if anyone knows, I'd love to know if they have evidence of that. Um, so I suppose we should ask, was Anand trying to flesh out some of the ambivalence that Wolf held to what he calls the messes facing both ways and double speak of English leftist liberals to deliberately create a high profile dialogue to publicize the Indian cause at a crucial political moment? Um, is he already pointing to that schizophrenia, if you like, that Wolf talks about much later in his autobiography? Was the tone of Wolf's letter a genuine gesture to democracy and freedom of speech, or a statement reflecting a form of cultural dominance as he puts the supposedly extremist colonial Anand in his place on the dangers of what he perceived to be his extreme narrow nationalist vision. There's a lot more context to this, which I won't go into, but now Anand didn't have a narrow nationalist vision. Um, and I think the polarities this, this letter kind of sets up were in fact much, much more complicated and more uneven, and it's something we can talk about later. It's worth pointing out that Wolf and Anand had crossed paths in the intervening years many times. They shared a platform on the famous 1935 Left Review petition against the Spanish Civil War, Authors Take Sides, and they met at the Paris Conference against Fascism in 1935. Um, so that's just another little extract. And then the final one, which I'm not going to say much about, um, is rather like Wolf's autobiography, it's a belated vision of Anand's recollections of meeting the Bloomsbury group in the 1920s when he was a student. And he over-glamorizes 
himself, but I think it's also ironic and tongue-in-cheek. Um, and it's a conversation that supposedly, but I think it did take place, between Leonard Wolf and Ian Forster and Mulcradan in Tavistock Square. And obviously he refers to Leonard's anti-imperialist writings, I think probably the book that Anna just mentioned, um, and the club culture as well, interestingly, as the exploitation of native women by English officials, which becomes the subject of Anand's novel, Two Leaves and a Bud. Um, so they're kind of hidden affiliations there, and I think one of the key ones was possibly um, Leonard's Jewish background, where he felt, I think, always felt like he was an outsider, but also identified with Anand's colonial position as insider, outsider, as exiled and cosmopolitan modern. Um, and I think I will probably stop there. Just finally, I would like to say, and I think picking up on Misha, um, that a question came up this morning about where we should place village in the jungle. And I just think it could be productively aligned pedagogically and critically alongside Anand's first novel, Untouchable, or indeed Two Leaves and a Bud. Um, and African classics had actually also come up. When I was reading it again, I thought of Things Fall Apart. Um, and I think it would be a very interesting dialogue. So perhaps those the more obvious, obvious choices for comparison, such as Forster's Passage to India or Connor's Heart of Darkness, could be extended. <laughs>